This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. Here are a couple of questions to ponder. Would there have been a civil rights movement and a Black Lives Matter without the camera? And are all cameras created equal? Did Derek Chauvin's body camera yield images of equal clarity and power as Darnella Frazier's cell phone of George Floyd's death? In the prophetic lens, Phil Allen Jr. takes an important look at the use of the camera as an indispensable prophetic tool. As Phil Allen says, racism began with a narrative, a story about white and black bodies. You won't want to miss what Mr. Allen has to say. My guest, Phil Allen, joins me later in the show. First, I'm so pleased to welcome back to the program our very good friend, Dr. Benoit Kampmark, who's a senior lecturer in the School of Global Urban and Social Studies at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. Benoit, welcome back to Life Elsewhere. It's a pleasure being back, Norm. Lots and lots of things are going on in the world, as they always are, and topics for your consideration today. Man, I just made some sort of basic headlines here, and I'd like to get your take on them. First of all, are we witnessing Putin's last days? Yes, well, it, that, that's just it, isn't it, uh, Norman? It's a very important point. What are we seeing happening in the Kremlin? The Kremlin, of course, has historically been a very uh, secretive institution, uh, remarkably opaque, very hard to get a sense about what's necessarily happening uh, behind its closed doors um, and its enormous closed doors. But certainly under Putin, this image now of being the competent politician, the savvy leader, uh, the, the somewhat smarter than the other uh, sort of look that he's had for many years has been diminished dramatically by the conflict in Ukraine. It was meant to be a swift operation. It's very clear now that uh, his generals and, and it's, it's always, well, well, we'll have to see what ends up coming out if we are fortunate to see it come out about what was decided, what were the reasons, immediate reasons for assuming um, such a rapid victory from the so-called special military oper operation, as he terms it. Uh, the fact of the matter is Ukraine has done a lot better than they anticipated. Um, the degree of support for Ukraine has been consistent, and essentially it's become almost like a proxy World War III, which is what's very dangerous about the situation. We've already got, got essentially European states, but then, of course, the UK um, and the United States in particular, um, funding and providing weapons across the board to Ukraine and training to Ukraine. So gains have been made. The Russian military has suffered demoralizing losses of late, uh, especially in the northeast of the country. There have been uh, lots of territory has been lost, uh, or rather, for the Ukrainian perspective, gained, of course, or regained. So there's been a, a uh, there's been a mobilization order that's been also made by the Kremlin. Um, losses have been very heavy. So the fact of the matter is nothing is going well. And Putin's maneuvers at the moment tend to be very reactive. 
yeah. like the recent move, for example, to forcibly annex uh, four territories in the south and the east of uh, the Ukraine, bringing it into Russian control. You know, the areas like Donetsk and Luhansk and Kherson and so on. I started by saying uh, these Putin's last days, of course, I'm being not necessarily tongue in cheek, but there is a lot of rumblings going on inside the Kremlin that Putin is getting some flack from some of those insiders. So what do you see as Putin's next move? Does he have one or is he just cornered? Well, it's, it's very dangerous uh, in terms of where he can move. He can't really move anywhere. He can't move um, a maneuver out of this situation with, with ease at all, because he does have people who are asking questions, which is something that was not expected before. Um, you know, he even has had questions asked from his close ally, of course, in Beijing, from yeah. President Xi Jinping. So he's got questions from those who are, you know, have been sympathetic to him and have been reluctant to... Uh, perhaps take the stance against the Ukraine attack that uh, other states might have had. But the fact is, because the operation is not going very well at all, and because this maneuver is simply not not, uh, paying dividends, uh, the fear and the concern is, and this is what happens in the Russian context, there's always a fear about what an overthrow might do, uh, what a coup might do, and so on. And that's, that's the real fear. Um, and given the fact that his options are very few and far between, this is where the nuclear saber rattling becomes very problematic. Yes. Because, you know, if he will be trying to find, of course, options to improve his standing, uh, try to find ways to have military gains of some sort. That's one of the reasons why he's gone ahead with these, of course, these um, farcical exercises of uh, uh, you know, referenda in the four provinces that um, he's trying to incorp- forcibly incorporate or annex. Um, the reality is that they want to show something from the very costly um, military exercise. They want to show something for the, for the loss of life and for the loss of huge amounts of material as well. And in so doing, they will have to come up with the next move. And what Putin will do is is both not, not just a frightening thought, but a one of intriguing uh, prospects as to what happens next. Yeah. One country that is being very supportive with uh, uh, our friends over in the Ukraine is, of course, the UK. But the UK is in a bit of a muddle right now. Trust, it seems, is just in a complete dither. Am I right in thinking that the UK is is just that uh, in a very peculiar situation, the pound sterling just fell to an all-time low. There's a lot of unrest in the UK right now. Let me get your take on what's going on over there. Yes, the situation in the United Kingdom is very peculiar at the moment. Uh, we, to give it context uh, and to, to give your listeners context, of course, uh, Britain does have a recently installed prime minister. It took a long time for Liz Truss to come to power because they were running an internal election amongst the Conservative Party faithful. Um, the seemingly, and, and I, I say this advisedly, the seemingly more sensible Rishi Sunak, who had been the Chancellor of the Exchequer, so he uh, has been you know, somewhat also successful outside politics. He's, he's a more recent face, if you like, uh, in the Tory, amongst the Conservatives and the Tories and so on. 
Uh, but Liz Trust was just considered the more appropriate one in terms of, uh, you know, image, uh, in terms of the conservative image and so on. But unfortunately, that conservative image has come with a with, you know, considerable price tag to the budget. Uh, she's very populist. Uh, Britain's having surging energy prices, of course, you know, as, as uh, in other places as well. Inflation is soaring. Um, and there are huge problems come up, uh, of course, towards Christmas. So her response to this uh, has been essentially to uh, throw away the pie. You know, she talks about growing the pie, but she's under the impression that growth is the way to go. And she's got this old and failed theory of trickle down economics, which features the idea of cutting tax rates. She tried actually with her chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, uh, to abolish the 45p rate in the pound of taxation, only to then <laughs> have enormous opposition to that. So it's, apparently that's not going to happen now. Um, and she recently also gave a speech uh, at the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham, where she outlined her particular views, which were very sloppy and shoddy and not very clear at all. Um, but one thing that's very clear about is that you know, she, within a matter of weeks, she has done something few British prime ministers have done, which is to tank the pound, and some would even say tank the economy, which is quite astonishing. Yes, yes. Whilst we're on the subject of the UK and prime ministers, I'm just going off on a slight tangent, and that is there is a TV series running right now produced by Sky Television. I don't know if you've seen this. It's called This England, and the very fine actor... Kenneth Branagh is playing the past Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Have you, do you know about this, this series? Have you heard about Some it? of it, yes. I, I'm quite intrigued to actually catch it if I can. And I'm certainly, yes. um, I've certainly come across it, yes, but I have yet to dive into it as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I dived into it and I watched all episodes of it. It's quite mm -hmm. harrowing in that it really is about the government's, the UK government's failure to deal immediately with COVID and it paints a very dastardly picture. But at the same time, there is this kind of very thin line that it walks along of parody, particularly with Branagh's take on Johnson. It's, I mean, Johnson is so good as, as, a, as, a, as a character, as a caricature to mimic. And Branagh does an amazing job yet it just kind of stops. I'm not sure if it really is a parody or not. And I, next time I speak to you, maybe we can talk about that. But I just want for my listeners to know there is this series running. I'm not sure what network it's on, but I did, I did get it. I, I don't know, somebody sent it to me, and I and I've watched all all episodes of it. I highly recommend watching it just so you can get a take on how the UK dealt with COVID as opposed to where I am right now in the USA. So it's, a, it's, it's interesting in that respect. It, it is also interesting insofar as um, when the way you described it is that it's very hard to, to do almost a parody of an individual parodies himself. Exactly. Because Johnston has essentially been for some years now, a parody of his own self in right. so many ways. And, and in the way he approaches audiences and the way he shows an extraordinary distance you know, from the realities in many ways of politics. Uh, he is yes. 
one of the reasons you know the the idea of the the articulate uh, or sometimes inarticulate buffoon uh, the public schoolboy uh, who manages to woo individuals but is quite frankly incapable behind a desk well yes. it, it may be capable in other respects but <laughs> not from the work perspective yes <laughs> yes you know there's a lot of that in it as well i should just add that i did an interview i might have told you this before i interviewed him a couple of years back when he wrote the book on churchill and and i had oh. a question for him and that was actually was a question sent to me by my sister in england and the question was what's going on with your hair boris and he was unbelievably charming with his answer and he, he answered as if he was speaking directly to my sister I mean, that's the kind of thing that he has, is that amazing ability to, 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 to connect like that. Moving on, China. Is the West just looking the other way with China? There's a lot going on, but do we just keep dismissing what's going on with China? Well, it's a very complex society. I, I suppose one of the things we need to realize is that a lot of material that happens in the context of the internal strife and the matters of its political and economic progress is, is shielded. You know, a lot of it yeah. is not actually one or the sort of material that we are permitted to consume. And, and there is, of course, very tough censorship, very strict controls over access to information and so forth. But that also should not lead us then to um, you know, get his, very excited by looking at sources and through material and presuming something is there which is not. Yeah. Uh, the classic case of this, of course, were these rumors of a recent coup, which uh, simply never transpired. And I think it's worth noting that the, this, you know, I, I wrote about this uh, for Counterpunch too. I call them, you know, the, the, the China coup dupes. Um, and the reason why this, this happened was that President Xi, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, was absent uh, after returning from the conference in Uzbekistan. He was absent for a while. Uh, there were suggestions also of shuffling in the military. A senior commander was retiring. Um, there were also senior politicians musing about the family and the values and so on. And then, and then there were suggestions that they might actually be, yes, some internal movement, possibly maneuvering around trying to get President Xi out of office, because, of course, he's seeking, uh, of course, you know, his continued um, stint, stint in power. He wants to essentially adopt imperial an imperial manner and stay there as long as he can. Uh, so the speculation was, were, was there a faction afoot? Might he, might he have been overthrown and so on? But then you started realizing where this was coming from. It was actually coming from press outlets and uh, individuals who are supporters of uh, the Falun Gong movement. Some would call it a cult, some call it, you know, religious sect, whatever you would like to call it. Falun Gong has, of course, various publication outlets such as The Echo, which is an interesting thing, and its own uh, several television networks. And so the pundits were out in full force suggesting that the redirection or cancellation of flights that were taking place. I think in one day there were 9,000 flights cancelled um, in China itself. The suggestion was that this was unusual and that something was afoot. As it turns out, this 
you know, so this month and then the last month, a succession of weeks, many flights have been cancelled in China, and that has nothing to do with a, any particular military maneuver, instability, and so on. This is a normal thing. There has been a lot of problems with the pandemic situation because, of yes. course, China continues to have very strict responses uh, in terms of lockdowns, in terms of restricting movement, and so on. So the result of these, call them plants, whatever you want to call them, these provocations from Falun Gong media um, was that supposedly there was a coup. And as it turned out and transpired, nothing of the sort has happened. So we have to also be careful from that perspective. Yes, it's true. Uh, there is a lot more internal strife than one would like to necessarily admit. Uh, and there is a lot of uh, instability in certain parts of China. It's a very complicated uh, multi-ethnic society too, which is something that some listeners may not quite realize. And for that reason, it is it, its complexity and the challenges it faces with energy, with resources, means that one has to come with it with a bit of care and caution. I think this is one of those subjects we could spend a complete hour on, but we'll get to that at a later time. Now I want to turn to Italy a perfect lady fascist? Well, it's interesting. Uh, yes, uh, she is the first uh, female prime minister at least had. So in of itself, uh, she, she did what uh, Hillary Clinton could not in the United States. And in, in fact, if I recall correctly, the um, former secretary of state, uh, Hillary, did the tweet, uh, perhaps uh, you know, not very cautiously, but she did tweet how thrilled she was that there was Italy's first prime minister. Um, yes, that's true. But then this particular prime minister does have her roots in a party, the Fratelli d'Italia, or the, the Italian brothers, which is, or the Brotherhood of Italy. Uh, and this is unabashedly a neo-fascist party. Uh, she's sort of moderated it somewhat, but not really. Uh, the fact is that she's now part of a coalition of right and extreme right. Uh, the other comprising, you know, Forza Italia, which is Berlusconi's old party, and then the League, which is head, led by uh, Matteo Silvani. So the result is we've got a, a conservative party that has a very, and this is the thing we'd have to, we have to remember too, it's not conservatism or the right-wing politics the way it's, it's understood in the States. Right. Okay, for, one thing, for, one, uh, for one thing, you know, that your listeners must appreciate that European right-wingers love the welfare state. Yes. You know, it's, it's an essential part of the project. They like the idea of subsidizing services. They do like subsidizing medicine. They like subsidizing childcare. All of these things that would be un inconceivable to your standard GOP, uh, you know, right-winger in the United States and so on. So, well, yeah. No, please, yeah. go ahead. No, no, well, no, and, so, and, that, and, that's, and from that perspective, that's a very interesting thing. So may, on the identity politics aspect, there are similarities, but not necessarily on the economic aspect of it. Because, you know, for, for Meloni, she has a view that many of those, many right-wing populist parties have in Europe, which is the idea that Europe, the traditional Europe is disappearing before literally a demographic collapse. The idea that uh, you know, Italians are not having more children. Uh, in Hungary, the same rhetoric is used by Viktor Orban. Uh, yeah. Not enough you know, proper Hungarians uh, getting between the sheets and doing their duty. Uh, <laughs> so, and and this is, <laughs> there's not enough of that happening. Um, and the left is accused of promoting immigration 
to replace declining numbers. So she, the theme of the disappearance, it's called in some circles, the great replacement, uh, which has been advocated by right-wing writers such as Renaud Camus, uh, who actually put forth the idea of the great replacement some years ago, that Europe was being replaced by not just immigrants, but immigrants of a swarthy Islamic nature, shall we say. Yes. So Meloni yes. is coming from that angle, and it's important to realize that uh, you know, because her, her speeches have been very much uh, focused on identity, but support for Italy as a notion and so on. I think in 2009, she made a suit, sorry, in 2019, she made the speech that defined her very, very typically and led her essentially to the way she is now. She said, I'm Georgia, I'm a woman, I'm a mother, I'm Italian, I'm a Christian, and you can't take that away from me. So that's the kind of constellation and compass she operates with. And I, I enjoyed what you said about the comparing to the GOP, which, which is very interesting, which leads me to ask you about, you're familiar, of course, with Maggie Haberman, the journalist, the well-known journalist, of the New York Times has a new book titled Confidence Man. So my question, Benoit, is Maggie Haberman's favorite con man, are we, the public now, are we getting bored with his game? Yes, this is uh, fascinating, uh, as, of course, uh, with Trump. It's one of those things with reactions that some people have tied. But I don't think one can attire about the game or the way he's disposed, because in the States, the States is a broken country. Um, and nothing will get away from the reality that unless he is convicted or unless he does, and I don't think he will be, I do not see, despite whatever actions are being taken, despite... Uh, documents being taken away, described as top secret, as you know, classified and whatnot, uh, the FBI raids in Mar-a-Lago and so on, despite the next charge, despite the next effort to target his tax uh, returns and so that, so on, I would still anticipate him running in 2024. Um, really? and, yeah. and, and the reality, it's very hard to see short of any of anything critical that will bar him from office. And that's one of the reasons why perhaps it explains the almost apoplectic dedication that uh, the Democrats have had trying to um, deal with them, especially through the January 6th committee, yes. uh, the efforts to try to sort of essentially show him to be, uh, well, the, again, speaking of coups, inciting an overthrow, you know, of the order and then himself assuming power. Um, so, the fixation continues and will continue to be there. He is still a very formidable figure. But the thing with, with the, I suppose, with the, the Haberman response or, or portrait is that there's nothing particularly new in it. I know there have been reviews suggesting that she had multiple scoops and, you know, she, she came up with some, some remarkable inner, you know, inner world there. But it's not an inner world that we're surprised by. He, ha he did personalize the office. He is petty. He is monstrously petty. He is mendacious. He is an, a, bound to make things up on the spot. You know, he is very much the property tycoon who is also an habitual liar. But yes. that is not, that's not to say, though, that, you know, and this is the problem with a work like that, with, with uh, Haberman's work, is that it doesn't get to the reason why he was there in the first place. It doesn't yes. get to the point about why he is still considered electable by tens of millions of Americans. And that's, 
and why he why he got there to begin with and and of course let's face it the the rot that was set in in the political process prior to him assuming um you know office in the white house yes i, I there was sort of a partly i'm not going to say tongue-in-cheek but i was partly hinting at the fact that are we bored with maggie haberman's almost i'm not going to say sucking up but she does do this kind of pandering to trump and i just was kind of going in that direction i of course would love to talk to you for another couple of hours because you always have just very very interesting things to say but unfortunately da 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 you know the rest my guest has been the one and only Dr. Benoit Kampmark, he's talking to us from Melbourne, Australia. He's a senior lecturer in the School of Global, Urban and Social Studies. He also writes wonderful columns in Counterpunch, amongst other places, and he joins us on Life Elsewhere every so often. Thank you so much, Benoit, for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Pleasure, Norman, anytime. Still to come, Phil Allen Jr., the author of The Prophetic Lens, will join me to talk about the camera and the black moral agency from MLK to Donella Frazier. Right after this. This is Life Elsewhere, hosted by Norman B. We would like to know what you think of our program. Send your comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C. The title of the book is The Prophetic Lens, The Camera and Black Moral Agency from MLK to Darnella Frazier. My guest, Phil Allen Jr. Phil, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with something that I noted in the introduction and I think this sort of sets the tone for where we're going. You quote a performer who's had, well, he's had his fair share of notoriety in front of the camera, notably his most recent extraordinary behavior live on TV at the Oscars. I'm, of course, referring to, to Will Smith. And Smith is asked on a, a late night talk show if racism is getting worse. And his answer Racism is not getting worse, it's getting filmed. That, I think, sets the tone for your book. I, I, I love the, the, that quote from Smith, but I also like that it sort of it really points right at what you're talking about in your book. I want to put it over to you and ask you why you decided to write this book. Thank you for that question. Um... Multiple reasons. Um, I, the, the book started off as a paper I wrote for a class in my doctoral program. I went to Sundance. I never thought I'd be going to Sundance to study through my doctoral studies. But being there, I, I studied, I, I watched films and I had to write a paper about what I saw. What, what, I, what, my, what was my takeaway? Yeah. And I compared that to after watching the films, um, there's a prophetic tone to a lot of the filmmaking. There are not a lot of the films you're going to see in the theaters that are very entertaining. Some are, 
but most are very hard films to watch. Yes. Right. And they're speaking to, to a lot of what's happening in our society. Yes. And um, so I wrote this paper and I connected that to what Dr. King did with the camera, taking advantage of the, of the cameramen who were out during the civil rights movement and the photographers. And he was literally being, there's an article, he's literally being a filmmaker, a yes. film producer. He knew what was going on, what was happening. And this was one way to, to broadcast to the world what, what the self had tried to hide. Yes. And, and, and retain, maintain within the South. And so I, I started, I wrote that paper and I've written different versions of it. But then fast forward to um, the Derek Chauvin trial. And I had this paper still sitting. I wasn't sure if I would write it, turn it into a book. And watching the trial, the video image, the video footage, that was what was the, that was the star. The camera was the star of the trial. And the jurors said as much in an interview as on CNN afterwards, they kept talking about it was the video footage. It was the camera. It was the images. And that's when I knew, you know what? I need to take this paper and unpack it some more and really write this out and, 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 offer this perspective on how we, on how important the camera has been historically. And the other part was, I also thought, I wish there was a camera available, someone recording when my grandfather was killed in 1953. In my previous book, Open Wounds, I, I tell that story. And there was a witness, they say, but she didn't say anything. And uh, I wish there were, were surveillance cameras um, a video camera or something. So that those were the, kind of the, the influences that that um, inspired me to, to write the book. Well, I'm glad you, that you did. And thank you for writing the book. If you don't mind, can you just give us just, if it's not too difficult, give us just a little bit more detail about your grandfather's demise? What, what happened? Would that be possible? Sure, absolutely. Um, my grandfather was a Navy veteran, um, fought in World War II. And in 1953, following, uh, I guess, a few days later, earlier or a week earlier, there was an argument with his employer. And um, but then he was told he got message that he could come back to work. So he came back. He got in a boat. He was a seaman. So he worked on, on the boats, on the ships, uh, on the boats, I should say. But um, two, two uh, co-workers he got in a boat with two co-workers, I guess there were two co-workers, two white men, and they went from the, the, the shore or the, the, the boardwalk of our hometown. We we're a harbor town just north of Charleston, South Carolina. And he goes, they get in the boat and they go to what they call Goat Island, a small island just behind um, the storefronts uh, in, in town. And waiting at Goat Island was his employer. And he had a right, a shotgun. And the two men tried to hold my grandfather. He wrestled away the struggle. He got away from them. And he was a great swimmer. And he tried to get to the water for safety to dive and avoid being shot. And he got shot in the back of the head. Ooh. And the death certificate to this day says accidental drowning. <sighs> Fell off the boat. I mean, right then you asked the question, so why did he fall off the boat? Right. He's a Navy veteran. 
He's a great swimmer. He's known to be a swimmer. He works on the sea, in the water. Um, he just fell off the boat and drowned. He just forgot how to swim. With a hole in the back of his head. With a hole in the back of his head. So my great-grandfather, my grandmother said my great-grandfather saw the body and confirmed that there was a bullet hole. And I, I did a documentary short film, um, actually inspired by Sundance, going to Sundance. Ah. Um, so I did a documentary short film called Open Wounds and um, telling the story. And so that's what happened. My father was two years old. And I talk about intergenerational trauma from racial tragedy because people would always say, not always, but oftentimes I hear, particularly white folks say, why can't we move on from the past? Yes. And what people don't realize is there's trauma that is passed on intergenerationally. Yes. Whether it's because we have been, we have absorbed what we've seen from our, our grandparents and parents, or some would even say epigenetically, that trauma can affect the genetic memory, right? And it can be passed on through the body, through the birthing process from generation to generation. So I tell that story and, and get help people understand there's still some healing that we have to do as, as Black folks, but also as a nation. We oh, can yeah. make the argument we're all traumatized to yes. some degree. Yes. Know, there, there's trauma there. Yes. So that's what that story is about. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. Here's a question for you, Phil. Mm -hmm. and, and this came about, this question came about after reading your book. And, you know, after I read a book and I know I'm going to be doing an interview with the author, I often go through my mind. <laughs> I think about things that aren't in the book or just, I just have lots of questions, maybe not necessarily to do with the book, but just questions that, you know, I think of. One question that just kept coming up for me is the name O.J. Simpson. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, O.J. Simpson and the trial was, in some respects, and I think other people have said this, the ultimate TV special. I mean, it was when we all know, we've all seen at least some of it, and we certainly will know about it. I'm wondering for you, for Phil Allen, in putting this book together, was that an area that you just didn't want to talk about? You, I mean, just give, give me a thought about O.J. Simpson as, in, as it relates to the prophetic lens. Well, I, I didn't think about O.J. Simpson, <laughs> other, than the, <laughs> other than comparing his trial to the Derek Chauvin trial. Yes, yes. And, and how um, we were so drawn to it. Um, and, and you could see, you could see, you could look, if you look at the, as I was thinking about it right now, you could see when he tried on the glove, like the drama of that in front of the camera um, to, to allow the audience to see the visual, the power of the visual. Yes. Right. Um, not that the audience we're making the decision, but he was doing it also in front of the, the jurors. So there's something about the, and there's a chapter in the book, the power of the visual image. Yes. Right. Not just what we hear or we hear about, but what we see. And I think um, Johnny Cochran, obviously um, he, he understood that in, in that moment as well. Um, Dr. King understood that. So I didn't, I don't really think about OJ Simpson. I don't even think it came across my mind while I was writing the book. Um, I do think, though, that the trial reminded me of, of O.J. Simpson's trial and yes. how it, it captured the attention 
um, and, and, and all, all that was happening on camera. You see what I'm saying? Yes, um, that, yes. That's the only thing I thought about and re- would think about in regards to O.J. Simpson. Well, one of the reasons that I asked that question and thought about this was, as you talk about the Chauvin trial and uh, Donella's, Frazier's video, and also the reaction from the jury, because you have quotes from the jury in the book, and also the reaction from viewers, but in particular, black folk, in particular, their reaction. And I, I then I'm sort of comparing that to the O.J. Simpson trial and the aftermath of the O.J. Simpson trial and how white folk could not understand how black folk were jubilant and they could not ever get that. And I think still to this day can't get that. As vis-a-vis what happened with the Chauvin trial, I think a lot of people was like, yes, we understand what's going on. But I, I guess where I'm going with this is that the time has changed. Things have changed. We now, as you say so clearly in your book, everybody's got a camera. You know, everybody can make their own documentary. And things mm-hmm. have changed. How we view things have changed. Was that important to you as you as you were as you were writing the book, talking about because you do talk about it about the the access to 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 imagery. Yeah, um, going back to to the trial, one thing I thought about was even while I was watching Derek Chauvin, there was this sense of relief. Yes, when the verdict came out, which reminded me. As I'm speaking, it, it did remind me while I was watching. It reminded me of the O.J. Simpson okay, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. trial, and for Black folks to celebrate that, and many were celebrating the Derek Chauvin um, verdict as well. But to celebrate that, especially coming off of the heels, O.J. coming off of the heels of Rodney King verdict, mm-hmm. and so for us, it's this idea of having to celebrate. This was a frustrating frustration for me, though, having to celebrate justice being done Mm. as if we don't expect it because we don't expect it to be done. Yes. Um, In in, in terms of how, how, how we've moved forward in terms of things are being different, everyone having a camera. um, I think that's vitally important for us to realize where we are today. Yes. Um, If you think about, just a few days ago with the NBA basketball player got punched in the face, a teammate punched him in the face, Draymond Green. Yes. Punched his teammate in the face. And then the camp, the video was leaked. Yes. It has a different effect than just hearing about it. Yes. You think about Uvalde. We, we heard about, we got the, 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 the uh, story from the police department, but to see the images. Yes. And by, the, and by the same token, Phil, I'm going to go back in time just a little bit, but not too far back. Trayvon Martin, just think if there had been some video surveillance cameras at yes. that moment, how different things would be. How different things would be. Even if there were surveillance somewhere, someone's <laughs> ring, if, if there was a ring camera yes. Yes. somewhere, yes. Surve- you know. Um, and I think I might have said that in the book as well. If there was video image of Trayvon, there would be a different outcome yeah. because we would get to see Trayvon walking home and this man following him yes. and then what ensued. And it gives yeah. people an opportunity to actually be present. It, it pulls us into 
the event itself and, and not just having to imagine what happened based on audio. So having said that, let's go back in time to when certainly we didn't have video cameras, etc. But J.W. Griffiths, who you talk about in the book, can you just talk about why Birth of a Nation is so important in, in the aspects of the prophetic lens? Yes. So I see, thing I, let, me, let me just say this. I hear that sigh. I hear that heavy, heavy sigh as you say, yes, please. Because birth of a nation is responsible for, and I won't say that the, the narrative began with birth of a nation. In my research, even now, this past week, and we can trace the lineage of the narrative around black bodies, the threat of black bodies, the uh, the, the sexual promiscuity or the uh, sexuality, sexual deviance yes. perceived around black bodies. That can be traced back to antiquity, right? But what Birth of a Nation did was dramatize it, cement it, re, uh, re reinforce it in the minds of white Americans, um, and even for black Americans who internalized that messaging, um, it, it did that and, and it, it began this, this, this lineage of filmmaking that generation after generation reinforced those narratives. Narrative is powerful. I mean, we can make the argument that um, white supremacy is a narrative. Racism began with a narrative, a story about black and white bodies or dark and light bodies in various shades and the meanings that were placed upon them and, and the, the, that are immutable. And it's, it, it was telling a story solidified by pseudoscience and theology. So it's a narrative. And that's yeah. what uh, Birth of a Nation did. And what we've been trying, and, and the sigh is because we're still trying to undo, trying to disrupt that narrative. Yes. Uh, through filmmaking, through uh, academia, um, art, um, what have you. We're still trying to disrupt that narrative, which tells you the power of it. Yeah. And then we come to, to MLK, as you say in the book so, so carefully. The man understood the power of the media, certainly understood the power of the camera and used it to his full advantage. I want to now talk about racism as it exists. And I think it would be fair to say that racism is universal. It's not just it's not just in America. But I grew up in a country that uh, that is. Well, I grew up in a neighborhood where my next door neighbors were from Trinidad. The people on this side were from Jamaica. The people over there were from, you know, it was, it was very, very mixed. I'm not saying that it doesn't have racism, that there isn't racism in the UK, not even slightly. But there is a difference. When you come to America, you feel, and I'm saying this to you as an African-American man, you feel a difference. And I've never, I have never, Phil, been able to put my finger on what really that is about. You know, as a white man who grew up in a mixed neighborhood and then come into America and realize mixed neighborhoods kind of don't exist. And it's kind of weird. It, it kind of makes you sort of stop for a moment and think about it. 
So that's a long preamble to ask you about racism. With writing this book, The Prophetic Lens, and the black moral agency, uh, uh, and as we've said, uh, uh, Will Smith says the camera is there now. There's more cameras. But are you optimistic? Because we, here we are, here you and I are, having a discussion about this, talking about your, your excellent book. But are you optimistic about where we are with racism, specifically in America? Wow. Um, I know, I'm sorry. That was a long... No, no, no. <laughs> Is is great great question. Um, I'll start the last question first. Yeah, um, I'm hopeful, and here's why I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful in the fact that there are people that are doing the work. Yes. I'm hopeful in in the laborers that there's always that they're pushing for progress. Yeah, I also know that at the same time there's a counter resistance that wants things to stay as they are. Right. And that's where we get into white supremacy. And here's why I'm hopeful in the laborers, the fact that we have laborers in all realms, we have people who are being that prophetic voice because if I'm not hopeful, I'm afraid of who I'll become. Yes. So I, I choose to be, to, to see those laborers, to see the work being done, to see the, hear the voices and, it, and I choose that hope to stay to stay hopeful, yes. because I don't know who I'll become if I'm not if I don't care anymore. Right. Um, racism. You talk about your experience, and I, and I, you know, I look at you. You were formed by that community of diversity. Yes. Of being able to see people of different shades and not be um, formed as much, I won't say necessarily at all. I think we all are influenced to some degree, but not formed by um, superiority, um, but seeing them as your neighbor equal. Um, and anything outside of that is kind of like, that's abnormal. Like, why yes. would I not see, this is my neighbor. I remember my sister, my young, my, my sister was in a, uh, when she grew up briefly in Maryland with my mom, um, I, I was in college and I called my mom and my mom said, yeah, I have the UN here at the house. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, Kelly's friends. And she had a Jamaican friend. She had an, uh, an African friend, an Asian friend, a white yeah. friend, an Indian friend. It yeah. was, it was the, it was the UN. <laughs> yeah. And I, I remember just feeling uh, really good about that. I wanted her to have that experience because we grew up I grew up in South Carolina and she had that moment in Maryland before she moved back to South Carolina and we didn't have that. So we were formed by segregation. Yes. We were formed by, you don't go to that side of town. Right. We were formed by on this side of town, there, there's a, a lacking of resources on that side of town. There are all the resources we were formed by when you walk out of your house um, and I will say this, when I was growing up, I didn't deal with the with uh, profiling from law enforcement until I was around 18. So growing up, I didn't have that particular experience. They didn't bother us as much. But by the time I was 18, you started to, to feel you, you get pulled over um, and, you know, for absolutely no reason. And it happens multiple times. Um, so your formation is different. 
And that's why it was hard to, to put a finger on it when you get here, because it's so embedded. It's embedded in the attitude. It's embedded in the laws and policies. Um, it's internalized. So white supremacy is internalized by white folks. It's also internalized by people of color in, in, in several ways. One, we either admire whiteness and want to be in close proximity to and assimilate to whiteness, or we internalize it in the sense that um, we start to maybe see ourselves as inferior. And we have to fight against that. Yes. While white folks may inter internalize without even realizing it, internalizing inherent superiority in the way that they take up space, and the way that you have um, qualifiers on, you know, black TV, Hispanic television, black theology, Latin Asian theology. But you don't have to have the qualifier when it comes to whiteness. That in and of itself is a product of white supremacy. It centers whiteness. It doesn't need to qualify. It is the standard. And so we've internalized that. And so it's so embedded in the fabric of, of our culture. Yes, such good points. And you know, you've just touched on something as well, made me think about how important music has been in my life, doing radio and doing music shows and still do. Um, and how important Africa, what we call African-American music or black music, forged my love of music, still does. And again, I'm going to refer back to growing up in the UK. We didn't have black radio stations. We didn't have R&B stations. We had music stations. And, you know, um, Marvin Gaye, got to get a witness, as you talk about right at the very beginning of your book, was an all-time favorite of every kid I knew. It didn't matter what shade of skin they were. I mean, that was the music you listened to. That, I think, has been an integral part of, of, of the sort of, as you talk about, the white domination, particularly then with this refer back to the lens, to the camera lens in movies, the, 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 the whiteness of music. It became fashionable at one time to have black actors and black directors and... Talk to me just a little bit about how the mu how the entertainment industry in America has not not changed from being dominated by whiteness, as you say, but how th the black experience has has made itself felt in to the general public. But it's still it still seems to me that it's that it's categorized as being in quotes black. Yeah, again, it, it goes back to what we what's been embedded in, in the fabric of, of our culture. Um, it's almost necessary to identify um, black music, um, hip hop, R and B, what have you. Um, that's for them. Um, that's for those people. Again, this idea of segregation wasn't just about segregating bodies; it was segregating everything. Yes, schools, yes. Um, culture, food, um, and then and on the flip side, th there are times when when we almost wanted to have that that um, qualifier there, yes, um, because otherwise it would be appropriated, and and we would it would not be 
um, acknowledged or recognized that this food, this music came out of this culture. So you almost had to have the qualifier in a sense. So it's like kind of a double-edged sword yeah. where, you know, you, you have music that originates out of the black community, like rock and roll, but then it, it gets universal but it's never it's not really given the credit unless you're you're a historian and you're and you're engaged in that in that 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 genre and you know the history yeah it, it it's it's the credit is given somewhere over here to an elvis presley or 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 someone else uh, e even if you go back to um country music um there's an influence from the the the, the music side of it there's an influence from african american culture oh yeah absolutely but yeah. you wouldn't know that Right. Um, there are foods that come out of black culture that my ancestors, the enslaved, having the, 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 the scraps and turning it with their creativity, turning it into delicatessen, a, a dish that's, that's loved. Yes. Um, so, you know, almost we almost have to have those those qualifiers. Um, just to to remind people of where some of these things originated um, yeah. and, and to, to be able to honor the culture in, in some way. Let me remind my listeners, I'm talking to Phil Allen Jr. The book is titled The Prophetic Lens, The Camera, A Moral Agency, from MLK to Donella Frazier. I get the feeling that this was a passion for you. When you started to, you wrote the paper, then you decided you were going to write the book. That I, I, it comes across to me in talking to you and seeing your face that this is a passionate, this is a passionate book for you. There's a lot of, there's a lot of Phil Allen's heart and soul in this book. Having said that, was it an easy book to write? It wasn't. Um, it, it was easy in the sense that I knew much of what I wanted to write. Yeah. But it wasn't easy in writing it. Uh, because I had to relive some things, some experiences. Because part, you know, you're you're right. It's very, there's a lot of me in this, because there are many times when I wish there was a camera to capture many of the experiences I've had. Um, there, there's and and to capture the, both the microaggressions and the bigotry. I've had my life threatened multiple times by white men here in California of all places. Um, and it, 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 I, don't, I don't always feel safe in many spaces. So for me, when I talk about the camera, it, it, you know, building from my, off of my grandfather's mm. murder, there are many experiences I've had when I wish there were, there were a camera, there was a camera there to, to document. Um, so yeah, a lot of me was in this, a lot of, I'm very passionate about that intersection of race, culture, theology, ethics. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're right. But it wasn't an easy book to read to write. Gosh, we could go. You and I could go off on um, some wonderful tangents here. Absolutely. It's a delight. It's a delight talking to you, Phil. I've really enjoyed it. Unfortunately, time, as always, as as you know, is up against us. So I'd like to let my listeners know, I've been talking to Phil Allen Jr. His book, it's a terrific read. It's called The Prophetic Lens, The Camera and Black Moral Agency from MLK to Darnella Frazier. Phil, thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. 
Thank you for having me. I, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you to my guests, Dr. Benoit Campmark and Phil Allen Jr. Links to my guests' books and writings are up at lifehealthswear.co. Thank you for listening and make sure you send me your feedback. My email address comes up in just a moment. Till next time, be well, be safe, and always, it costs nothing, be nice. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.com. Dot co. That's C O.